good morning. Welcome, Connection Church. My name is Ethan. If I haven't had the pleasure of meeting you yet, I'm one of the pastors that has the honor of, of getting to serve here. But good morning. Um, welcome back. Most of you probably came back from one of two places, either Daytona or St. Simons. And so welcome back. Um, be careful. I feel like one in three people have a chance of sunburn. So handshakes, no, no shoulder pats uh, for the next week or so. But good to see everybody back. Um, we're continuing in this series, John. We're calling it The Real Jesus. And <clears throat> our purpose in going through this is to show not who, who, not who we do, sorry, not who do we think Jesus is, not who do I want Jesus to be, but who is the real Jesus based off what scripture says. And so um, Blake and I and a team of others, we got back last week from Turkey, which was awesome. Thank y'all for a church praying for it. All people who reached out and texted us, prayed for us, gave financially to help us go. We're able to encourage our missionary there. We saw four, um, kind of hard to discern, maybe five salvations of people who went from Muslim to Christ to follow Jesus. And so praise God, like that was awesome. Yeah, yeah, praise God. And I think even more importantly than that, we were able to encourage our missionary there who he's there long-term. He's the one that really has to do the discipling and have the endurance. And so that was a great trip, but glad to be back. And so this morning, we're gonna start in John chapter 12, verse 12, and we're gonna go through the rest. Um, Every time I preach, I always tell my wife, it's going to be shorter this time. It's going to be shorter this time. And it ends up being a few minutes longer each time. And so, um, yeah, I don't know if I need to blame that on God or me, but whatever. We'll see, right? So coming in before we start, let's set the scene. I don't know if many of you heard about this, but there was kind of a famous king coronation back in the, back in the day. For those of you who don't know what the word coronation means, it just means when a king officially gets put in office, put in kingship, right? And so there was a king named John Bedell Bacasa. I think I'm saying that right. On December 4th, 1977, the world press witnessed his coronation over the Central African Empire when that was a thing. And he became the Imperial Majesty Bacasa I. Check this out. His coronation was designed and choreographed by a French designer and was estimated upwards of $25 million in cost, which would be over 80 million today. The, pr the procession involved his 29 official children and Catherine, his favorite of his nine wives, was wearing a $73,000 gown made from Paris and he arrived and showed up in a golden eagle coach and buggy with six horses in front of it. He wore a 32 pound robe decorated with 785,000 pearls. He had a laurel wreath like those worn by the Romans after a victory or a king and after the ceremony, he concluded, or after the ceremony had concluded, he sat down, took off the laurel reef, and put on a $2.5 million crown while sitting on a $2.5 million throne. Wow. <laughs> Talk about all the bells and whistles. And although that was a, a, a sight to see, I'm sure, a time to remember, two years later, his reign wasn't, quite as awesome and impressive as his coronation. Two years later, he was overthrown and sentenced to life in solitary confinement where he died about 20 years later due to all the mass murder of children that he was accused of. And so, probably a depressing twist to end a kind of crazy story, but the point being, today I wanna to talk about the upside kingdom because as we're about to go into this passage, Jesus is coming into Jerusalem and that's where we're about to pick up in verse 12 and it's estimated there was well over 2.5 million people in Jerusalem getting ready for the Passover festival. And so a ton of people showed up, and the king of kings comes in, and unlike the story I just read about how fancy and bougie and, and gold-plated the coronation was, we're about to look at King Jesus and how he came in and how he enters the scene of the procession of the real king. So with that being said, let's start in verse 12, and we're going to work our way through. And I'll stop here and there to help explain a few things. And so, in verse 12, the next day the crowd that had come for the festival heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him shouting, Hosanna, which means save us. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it. As it is written, do not be afraid, daughter Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. That's referencing Zechariah chapter 9 feeling that prophecy of coming in on a donkey's colt. At first, his disciples did not understand all of this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about 
written about him and that these things have been done to him. Now the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to spread the word. Many people, because they had heard that he had performed the sign, went out to meet him. That just makes me think of evangelism. Hey, come and see what Christ has done, right? Come and see what he's done in my life. Verse 19, so the Pharisees said to one another, see, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. And we see they clearly reacted in fear and frustration and in jealousy because it wasn't just Jews, it was Greeks. The whole world, they said, probably obviously an exaggeration, but there was a lot of people there excited about this new king coming into town. And I'll stop before we continue in verse 20, just to, just to paint the scene. They had palm branches and they were fired up and doing some research, I kind of understood some of this cultural context of symbolism. Palm branches were very political, very patriotic, very like nationalistic. And what I mean by that is like, it's the same as this past July 4th of wearing red, white, and blue and having little flags hanging everywhere or a flag flying, right? It's, it was a very USA bravado, like having palm branches. It was even printed on one half of their, or a lot of their coins on half the side of the coin was a palm branch. And what it meant was it was, it kind of stood for peace, but it was towards the king and his reign. And it was a way of saying, we support you. We want you to be our king. And so by the context of this, and even as we keep reading through John in the future, you'll see that they missed the point of what he was coming to be king of. They were looking for a political leader and a conquering king riding on a horse with a chariot and an army to overthrow the Roman government. Back then, if, you, if a king rode a donkey out somewhere, it symbolized he was coming in peace. If he rode a horse, it symbolized he was coming for war. And so imagine when King Jesus pulls up and they're over here waving their flags, aka the palm branches, and he comes in on a donkey, slow and without soldiers behind him, just a few disciples. I'm sure that had to confuse them, right? And so what they were hoping for is, hey, these Roman, this Roman government, they've been in power for too long, They've suppressed us, oppressed us, depressed us, whatever, right? And like, they've taxed us, burdened us. It's time, it's time for us. It's time for the Jews to be on top. We're God's chosen people. He promised the Messiah. He promised somebody was gonna come lead us and take care of us, but they didn't understand he was coming to do way more than freedom from Rome. He was coming to freedom from sin. And so they were, I think Tony Morita says it, a pastor I respect and like to listen to, he talks about so easily we get caught up in painting Jesus in our political worldview or in our cultural worldview or what we think he should be or what we want him to be. I didn't, but I almost put up a picture. I saw a picture on July 4th somebody sent to me that was just funny, but it was a picture of Jesus, Donald Trump, and John Wayne and the cross going across and the cross, you know, covering all three. And it was funny because it was dumb, but like it was funny because isn't that the same thing that's happening? We can, if we're not careful, we tie Christianity and a savior from sin and who the king of king is with our American policy, our political policy, our cultural policy, all these things. And they were so convinced in what their king they thought had to look like. He was right in front of them and they missed the whole point. Tony Rita said, I'll just leave this quote here because this, this actually was true in my dad's life. My dad used to get so fired up I'm sure he doesn't mind me sharing this. He's not here, so it's fine. But my dad used to get so fired up on politics and watching the news, I would see it, I would see it affect his mood. I would see it affect how he talked to people and how he even talked about things of the Lord. And we were, or he was convicted one day, we were talking about it of, man, are you more worried about God's kingdom or your kingdom or American's kingdom? And that one quote, I'll just leave and we'll move on, says, Tony said, uh, some people, wake up and check their news first thing every morning and they're either sad or mad the rest of the day. And I just wanna encourage you, when you come before Jesus, drop your expectations and come and see what the word says, not what you want it to mean. And so let's keep reading, verse 20. Now there were some Greeks among those who went up to worship at the festival, going beyond just the Jews. They came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee with a request. Sir, they said, we would like to see Jesus. Philip went to tell Andrew, Andrew and Philip in turn told Jesus, and so right here we see the Greeks react. Like they're interested, they're excited, they wanna meet him, they wanna know who he is. It's more than just the Jews. And so Jesus replied, the hour has come for the son of man to be glorified. Isn't this very interesting that right after the Greeks come to Christ, then he says, it's time for the son of man to be glorified. What do you think the point is there? 
I believe it's because Christ came to die for all, not just the Jews, but for the Gentiles. And anytime you see Gentiles, people are split up in New Testament language, and the two people, there were God's chosen people called the Jews that were chosen to be a light to the rest of the world to point to the one true God. And then there was everyone else called the Gentiles, the non-Jews. And so that's what Gentiles means. And so Jesus replied, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. I believe it's four times previously in this Gospel of John, what do we hear him say? My hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. But finally, for the accumulation of all of history leading up to this point, from beforehand previously looking towards it and afterwards looking back to the cross, the hour has come for Christ to be glorified. He's coming into Jerusalem with one thing in mind, going to die on a cross. And so, verse 24, very truly, I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant also will be. My Father will honor the one who serves me. And I'll pause there because that's a very, like, thick, poignant passage. We'll come back and look at that later. But really quick, three things I want to pull out. For anyone who loses their life, meaning disregards their own life, and truly surrenders to Christ and lives for him, right there he gives us three promises. One, you get eternal life. Two, you get his presence. He says, where my servant is, I am also. Three, my, my father will honor you. You're honored by the father. So is losing your life for the sake of Christ worth it? I would argue absolutely so. Verse 27, now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. No, it was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. And we can see the humanity of Christ bleeding through. Man, he was, other translations say he was um, greatly disturbed, horrified, right? Like, this was not a happy thought. Not only was it the thought of, I'm about to go be tortured and die on the cross, people that hate me because I love them. But I think more devastating than that, never in the history of, never in the history of eternity had God the Father and God the Son been separated. If y'all are familiar, maybe you've heard this before, Father, Father, why have you forsaken me? That wasn't wordplay. When, when God put the sin on Christ, guess what? A holy God can't be in the presence of what? Sin. For the first time in history of eternity, <clears throat> Jesus and the Father were separated. I believe he was a, a lot more in anguish over that than he was getting beat, as bad as that was. And so we see the humanity bleeding, but we also see the heart of Christ. But what am I going to say? Take this away from me? No, that's the very reason I came. Father, glorify your name. If we could sum up the Christian life in one sentence, the heartbeat would be, Father, glorify your name. Right? Verse um, <clears throat> 29, and this is really cool right here. So immediately after he says, Father, glorify your name, it says the crowd that was there, the crowd that was there and heard it said it had thundered. Others, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'll skip the verse 28. Father, glorify your name. Here's where we can see, um, then a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it. Sorry, then a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. So he says, Father, glorify your name. And then immediately a voice came from heaven. Just think about that. Like, whether it's cloudy or clear skies, all of a sudden the heavens just open and an audible voice comes from above. They didn't have radio or TV or all that back then. Just think of a, a loudspeaker playing super loud or a trumpet, right? And it says, oh, I have glorified it and I will glorify it. And Jesus said, this was for your sake. He goes on to say, this is for your sake that you heard this voice. Meaning, he already knew the Father's will. They're staying in constant communication and in unity, right? He's like, it's for your sake you get to hear this. And something I thought of, isn't this cool, that a lot of times in the Christian life, doesn't God have a way of meeting us in the valleys? Right when we see the humanity of Christ saying like, he was disturbed, he was horrified, he was just greatly stressed of what was coming, and he says, but not my will but yours, the Father speaks and says, I have been glorified and I will be glorified. I see that as encouragement, as affirmation of you are honoring me and you will be honored. And I don't know if you're a small group leader or just a Christian trying to live your faith out or whatever it is, but I know that times it can be discouraging. At times it might feel like you're the only one, 
But God has a way when you're truly living for him, truly seeking him, if it's, if it's kind of down in the dumps, if you're in the valley, God has a way of speaking to us and encouraging us and affirming us right in those valleys that he says, keep going. I'm being glorified through you. And so I don't know who that's for, but I pray somebody received that. Um, Jesus said, this voice was not for your benefit or for your benefit, not mine. And not only this, but this is the third time in the life of Christ that the voice of God audibly spoke where people could hear it. And isn't it crazy how, although this happened three times, it's still so hard for people to believe? Like, I just think if, I, I would like to think, if the heavens over and the roof of SDC just like split like the Georgia Dome for a second, and a voice came down and spoke, I would like to believe that's probably God. <laughs> right? And so... It's crazy how that's happened three times in the life of Christ and been recorded and people know of this, but still they refuse to believe who he says he is. Let's keep going. Verse 31, now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out and I, when I'm lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show the kind of death he was gonna die. The crowd spoke up. We have heard from the law that the Messiah will remain forever. So how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is the Son of Man? And let me add to that just because that can sound confusing. But when they say we've heard from the law, that's considering the Old Testament and the prophets. All the Old Testament combined, they call that the law. So, we, hey, we've heard from the scriptures. The, 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 the Son of Man, the Christ, the Messiah will live forever. And when they, the word, the, the catchphrase Son of Man meant Messiah, meant Savior, meant King. They knew, like, Son of Man sounds weird to us. Like, when I heard, the first time I heard that was like watching the cartoon Tarzan probably, right? But like, the Son of Man might sound weird to us. But to them, they knew that meant Messiah. And so when they said, who is the Son of Man? It was more of a rhetorical question because what they're saying is, hey, the law, the scripture says, the king's coming, he's gonna live forever. But you're saying the Son of Man, the Messiah, has to be lifted up on a cross. They knew that the terminology has to be lifted up meant to be crucified. So like how could, and I get it, I think we might have thought the same thing, right? How could this king that's prophesied about all the, like several times throughout Psalms, throughout Isaiah, throughout Ezekiel, throughout many other places in the prophets in the Old Testament, says the king will reign forever and he will set up his reign forever and he will bring peace and he will reign forever. He will abide forever. How does it say that? But you're about to die. I thought you were gonna live forever. I thought you were gonna be immortal king. And what they didn't realize is that both of those things are true because Christ didn't just go die and stay in the grave. Three days later, he came out of the grave. He's still alive. And so the king does live forever, but on this world, he had to die because his kingdom's of eternity. As he told Pilate, he says, my, my kingdom's not of this world. And they couldn't, they couldn't quite get that yet. They were still thinking in the physical and so when, he, when they ask him that question, he ignores it because he's already answered it so over many times. And they ask, who is the son of man? Or who are you? Who is the Christ? He's answered that all throughout John leading up till now. <clears throat> and so he kind of swerves that and then he goes on to repeat. Verse 35, then Jesus told them, you're gonna have the light just a little while longer. Walk while you have the light before darkness overtakes you. Whoever walks in the darkness does not know where they are going. Believe in the light while you have the light so that you may become children of light. When he had finished speaking, Jesus left and hid himself from them. So before he, so he's on the way to the temple. He's walking into Jerusalem. There's a huge parade, over 2.5 million people. And the Pharisees are like, hey, what's gonna happen with this dude? Is he, is he about to start a riot? The Roman soldiers is, is pretty much expected to be believed. They were on guard thinking there's about to be some big riot coming for Caesar. Let's like extra security, secret service. Y'all be ready, right? And he goes straight to the temple. And the last words he said is in, in the first 11 chapters of John, we see all the, all the miracles recorded by John. After chapter 12 and on, there's no more miracles other than the cross. And in chapter 12 is his last public speech. It's his last stand. And you know what he says with the last words? He, 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 he leaves them with one more thing. I am the light. Believe in me so you can become children of the light. The very last thing he said in public was a cry to put their faith in him. Now, do you think Jesus loved them and wanted them to be a part of the kingdom? Absolutely. It's the last words he gave them before he went to the cross. Everything else is private discussion from chapter 13 forward. We'll keep going. So after he gives them this last, this last word, 
Verse 37, even after Jesus had performed so many signs in their presence, they still would not believe him. And isn't that what sin does to us? No matter how many times you've seen God move, no matter how many sermons you've heard, how many testimonies or miracles you may have witnessed, it's so easy still not to believe in God. Isn't that what sin does? It blinds us, deafens us, hardens our heart. And, and do not be deceived. The same sunlight that melts the ice caps hardens the clay. The gospel is polarizing. You'll either surrender and your heart will be softened and more like him, or you, you might walk out of here, you might, sorry, you might walk out of here this morning hearing it, contemplating it, wrestling with it, rejecting it. And I promise you, the, 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 the old lie that when I'm 80 or when I'm older or one day in the future, I'll surrender, that can never be more false because the gospel is polarizing. You're gonna leave more melted and softened or more hardened like clay. And he gives one last speech and he says, come to the light. And so this morning, before we go anywhere else, as the gospel's being laid out this morning, I pray that you don't resist and go into further hardness of heart, rejecting God, I pray it's the opposite. Verse 38, <clears throat> this was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet. Lord, who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For this reason they could not believe because as Isaiah says elsewhere, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts so they can neither see with their eyes nor understand with their hearts nor turn and I would heal them. This can seem super tricky, but this is referencing Isaiah chapter six after Isaiah had his call and said, Lord, use me. And he said, here's what you're gonna go say. And a part of that, he talks about, they're gonna have hardened hearts. They're gonna be blind. They're gonna be deaf. They're gonna reject me. And so in one sense, you're like, man, this could, this could be really tough. And I don't wanna get too much into this of wrestling with God's sovereignty versus, versus our response to reject Christ. But John makes it clear, the first verse, or in 37, he starts off with, despite having seen all this and heard all this, they still chose not to believe. God makes it clear that when we reject Christ, when we reject the gospel, the responsibility is on us. But in his sovereignty, check this out, if all the Jews and Pharisees would have stopped at that moment and believed, he wouldn't have been crucified. And so in, in, in a way of his all-knowing power that only he can scheme up, he, he tells them and invites them to come to him but also knows that some won't and has planned to use that for his glory, that the same people who hate and reject him are putting him on the cross are the ones he's dying for, and he used their hardness of heart, and that verse that never has rang more true, what the enemy meant for evil, God uses for good. And so isn't it crazy we have an all-powerful God that, that although it was on them that they rejected Christ, it didn't catch him off guard. He prophesied like 640-something years prior through Isaiah that they would do that. And through them doing that, guess what? He used their hardness of heart to put him on that cross to actually be the Savior. Because if they would have all believed and got saved and he wouldn't have gone to the cross, guess what? They wouldn't have got saved. That's kind of like a lot to think about. And if you catch it, you catch it. But we won't, we won't stay there. And so continuing on, hmm, makes me think of Romans 5.8. Yet while we were still sinners, he showed his love and that he died for us. The same people that were his people, his chosen people that he came for, put him on that cross. That's, that's grace. That's love, despite our sin. Verse 41, we'll keep going. Isaiah said this because he saw Jesus' glory and spoke about him. Yet at the same time, many, even among the leaders, believed in him. But because of the Pharisees, they would not openly acknowledge their faith for fear they would be put out of the synagogue. For they love human praise more than the praise from God. Ooh, that hits. I'm sure that hits somebody on, on some level or another, but a lot of people go back and forth on the word believe here and what that meant and were they really believers? And I think there's a few truths we can know to be true. Everything in the Christian life is not to be hidden. It's so that he might be made known. And so to be a secret believer, at some point, it's gonna come to light. Either you're really a believer or you're really not a believer. But there's no such thing as a totally secret believer. There's no such thing as you got saved and now let's like put a blanket over you. It's the city on a hill cannot be hidden. A lamp with a lampshade so the light can shine. You're gonna be the salt and the light of the earth. And so simply put, if you 
want to be a Christian but don't want anyone else to know about it, that's not being a Christian. I would argue Jesus isn't the Lord of your life. And I don't want to get too much in the weeds here, but there's times we run from God, we're disobedient. But if you really are a disciple and follower of Jesus Christ, people will know and you will tell them everything from professing your faith in Christ, proclaiming the gospel, telling others about it, getting baptized in front of the body of believers, taking communion with believers, everything in the Christian life outside of that personal relationship is public with others. And so it goes against the very nature to be a secret believer. And that's why it says they cared more about the praise of man than the, praise, the approval of man than the approval of God. And I know growing up here, that's something we fight really hard against. And I pray that's uh, eradicated this morning. Verse 44. And so earlier, or this says, then Jesus cried out, and I'll pause. You know, earlier it said, in verse 36, we talked about this was his last day and his last speech to the public, and then he hid himself. This reminds me of six, seven verses later, it says, then he cried out. So it's like, wait, I thought you just hid yourself. Has anybody, made me think of this, has anybody ever, maybe in the halls of high school or college or in the parking lot, you said bye to somebody, maybe you had not seen in a while, you get small talk, it's not awkward, but it's not like comfortable, you say bye to them, and then you keep walking the same direction, and it's like, do I say bye again? Do I like restart conversation? Do I act like I'm texting somebody? Do I act like I'm taking a call? And, you know, it's like the walk of weirdness and awkwardness. But I don't know if you've experienced that before, but I feel that's kind of what happened here. Jesus hid himself. He said, come to the light. And then John keeps talking, and then he's going to the temple. And I feel like he probably heard or just knew the hearts of the crowd. And I just picture, I don't know if this is true or not, but I just picture he hid himself, put a cloak over his head, whatever. And I picture he ripped that thing off, and it says, and he said, well, one last thing. It says, then Jesus cried out. And in the Greek, it meant a continual shouting. Never, never else, nowhere else in scripture. There's times Jesus yells, Jesus shouts, and Jesus says something at a high tone or pitch. But never before are there six whole verses where he yells them. It wasn't like, hey, listen to me. Listen up, listen up. Now that I have your attention, let's talk in a room like, like you know, inside voice. He yelled this and listen to this. You can just see the heart of Christ bleeding through. Then Jesus cried out, whoever believes in me does not believe in me only, but in the one who sent me. The one who looks at me is seeing the one who sent me. I have come into the world as a light so that no one who believes in me should stay in darkness. If anyone hears my words but does not keep them, I do not judge that person. For I do not come to judge the world but to save the world. There is a judge for the one who rejects me and does not accept my words. The very words I have spoken will condemn them at the last day. For I did not speak on my own, but the Father who sent me commanded me to say all that I have spoken. I know that his command leads to eternal life, so whatever I say is just what the Father has told me to say. He wraps up and says, I came to save you. I've been sent from my Father. My Father and I are one. I didn't come to judge. I came to take that judgment, but lo and behold, you will be judged by the words I have said. He laid out the whole purpose of his existence, the whole purpose of him coming, and the whole purpose of him going to the cross in those last six verses one last time. I think it was in hopes that they would hear. And so I want to talk just a, a few things. That's a long passage, and so we won't get too much into everything, but a few of the biggest points in this passage I think stuck out. I want to look at what life is like in the upside-down kingdom. I want to look at how the king, how King Jesus was coronated as opposed to a worldly king like we talked about earlier. I want to look at what life in the kingdom looks like. And once again, we're going to return to Jesus' last call, his last stand right there at the end. And so let's look at the king's coronation. And so verse 31 and 32, I'll go back to it. But he says, now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. And so in these two verses, he communicated four things that were gonna happen. At the coronation of King Jesus, here's what's gonna happen. One, it's gonna be on a cross. He has to be lifted up. He's gonna be crucified. Two, judgment of the world would be sealed. Three, Satan will be cast out and defeated. And four, I'll draw all men to myself. Now, let's walk through these really quick because, one, let's talk about the cross. He would go to the cross to be crucified. And so the crucifixion was King Jesus' coronation. 
it wasn't a crown of gold, it was a crown of thorns. It wasn't a coat of royalty, but it was his royal blood. This is an upside down kingdom. This doesn't make sense because the whole purpose he came is to die. Like, wow. He lived a sinless life to take on the sin of our lives. It's upside down. It's reversed, right? It doesn't make sense to our logical deductive reasoning. It doesn't make sense why he would do this, but for the sake of love. And why the cross had to happen is because we can't have a holy and good God being okay with wickedness and the sin of man. If a holy and good God is okay with the wickedness of man, guess what that makes him? A wicked God. It's a lot to think about, but it's really true. So because he is holy and he is just, sin has to have punishment. You can't disobey God and there's no consequences. But because he is loving and he created us to know him and be known by him and live in a relationship with him, he didn't leave us dead in our sin. And so there's the love of God. And so you see where the love and mercy of God and the justice and holiness of God meet on the cross is where justice and mercy met for you and for me. And the cross is what makes the gospel good news. Without the cross, it's not good news. But because of the cross, it is. Secondly, because of the cross, here's what came, the judgment of the world would be sealed. Now, what do I mean by that? That can sound kind of tricky, and I pray God gives clarity in, in explaining and hearing of this, but if you go to a, a courtroom or state of Georgia or, or the federal, whatever, they judge based off what? The law, right. And so someone's made the law, it's been passed down, right, the Constitution, whatever, like, we judge based off a measuring stick something. And so judgment was exposed and revealed because God is judging based off of his law, of what he says is good, of what he says is right, and what he says is evil, and what he says is wrong. He is the judge. And the measuring stick is truth, right? The anvil is coming down, and the anvil is truth judging what is good and holy and what is not. And so the fact that Jesus had to come and die shows there was judgment that took place because that judgment and that wrath had to be poured out. But why is it sealed? Well, because the fullness, at the fullness of time, Christ came, it says in the Bible in Romans, so that the sins of the world would be put on him. And later in Corinthians, he who knew no sin became sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness in God. And he paid for our life a ransom by his blood and so judgment was exposed because it had to be had and he came and he had to die. But also judgment was sealed because he took our sins on the cross. And so now what that means is there's a cross in the road, there's a, there's a fork in the road or, or a cross right in the middle. And when God looks at you, there's good judgment and there's bad judgment. It's funny if you go into like, we always think of judgment as negative, Right? But if you go into Planet Fitness, what's on the wall? No judge zone? It's funny. Everyone just feels better about themselves and whatever, right? But like, we always think we judge each other all the time. We compare all the time. We, 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 we're human. We make mistakes, right? But we always are judging. And typically, it is probably negative. But praise God for judgment being sealed. Because based on the cross, him putting your and my sins on that cross, if I've surrendered and died at the feet of Jesus and put my faith in Christ, now it says I'm covered in his blood, I'm washed white as snow, and I'm seen as righteous, and the robes of Christ are on me. And so when he judges Ethan or whoever else is a believer in this room, he judges you and me as righteous because we're in Christ on the cross where the wrath was already poured out. Ooh, that's good news. That's a great judgment. Praise God that sealed, it's not fickling up to me to like make sure it stays that way. Well, on the other side, the judgment is sealed as what, like, what you do with the cross, you're either judged in the cross, in Christ, or you're judged outside of that, and good luck standing before a holy God, just you and him. I could not imagine standing before a holy God without the cross in Christ between me and him. And that's why the judgment was sealed. You're either with Christ on the cross, now seen as righteous, or you're separated from the cross, 
dead in your sin. And so because of the king's coronation, he went to the cross. And what happened because of that? Judgment was sealed for eternity. Next we have what else happened. The byproduct was Satan will be cast out and defeated. You see, how did this defeat Satan? Well, Jesus being without sin, being fully man and fully uh, human, or sorry, God at the same time, in perfect obedience, coming down on earth, living in constant submission to the Father and oneness with the Father, was the perfect sacrifice. And because of the holiness of God and the purity of Christ, it was the one sacrifice that could break the, the chains of sin, of sin, of death, of guilt, shame, of the great accuser. Now, why is that? Because when Christ came to die on the cross, he took everything the enemy had, all the punishment of sinning against a holy God, and we know sin leads to death, and the death that came with that sin, and he rose up again, defeating it. I, I genuinely, like some theologians might argue with me on this, but I genuinely believe Lucifer thought he won. Like, think about it. I genuinely believe he thought he tricked Christ by using his own people against him to yell at him out of jealousy and fury and frustration and pride and put him on that cross. Like, that's crazy. I bet the same way he tricked Adam and Eve in the garden years ago, he thought, I got Jesus too. I got Jesus to agree to something that's going to mess him up. I, we're going to win. And I bet, I bet that first day he was in the grave, I bet all the angels that once were in heaven that left with Lucifer when he was kicked out, I bet they were, if, if, if hell could have a party, I bet hell was having a party. And they're like, hey, cheers, we won. Like, evil be love. Sin be holiness. Death be life. We won. He's in the grave. And I even bet on day two, they were reveling in like this hangover of, oh my gosh, is it really true? Like we really beat him. He raised Lazarus. He raised other people from the dead. Man, he was casting out demons, healing blind eyes, opening ears. But we won. Oh, but praise God it didn't stop there because then the third day, I bet it surprised them like no other when all of a sudden the tomb was rolled back and Jesus wasn't there anymore and he came out of that place in new life with holes on his, on his feet and his hands and not only did he take on sin and death, but he conquered it and died to sin for, on our behalf to be raised in life so that we could have life too. Woo. Satan was cast out and defeated because Christ didn't stay in the grave. That's hard to wrestle with, but praise God, because now we can read verses like Romans 8 that make sense. Or, or Romans chapter 8, later in the, in the chapter, says, For I'm convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither present nor future, nor any powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Woo! What, what happens when I can now say confidently, the same spirit that raised Christ Jesus from the dead now lives in me. And I can say, he who is in me is greater than he who is of this world. We can say that and cling to that with confidence because our belief, our faith, isn't based on a dead king. It's based on a king that died and came back to life. That's the difference between a cult and Christ. A cult becomes a cult when you follow a man who eventually dies and then it's officially named a cult after the death of that man because it was proven not to be true. But the reason it's not as cult is because he didn't stay in the grave. He came back. He was raised and he, he defeated it. And so that's why Satan will be cast. Satan is cast out and is defeated. And the power over darkness is in the spirit of the living God. Lastly, what he tells us about the coronation of the king is that he will draw all people to himself. And really quick, this doesn't mean just because Christ died, everybody goes to heaven. But it doesn't mean now Everybody can believe in Christ. And so this was significant because the Jews didn't understand that they just, it wasn't just them that was God's chosen people. They didn't understand that he wanted to save the Gentiles too. They were so, listen, Romans 1, 16 says, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. And remember, Gentile means everybody else. You know what's crazy? They wanted their political king to come in and kill the Romans and take over. And guess what? Jesus came to die for the Romans too. Ooh. 
He died for them too. And so that's why we send missionaries. That's why we plant churches. That's why we're serious about planting churches domestically, internationally, and everything in between is because we know that God has purchased and is drawing people from all nations, all tongues, all tribes to himself. And what has the power to draw them and save them is by sharing the gospel of Christ lifted up. And so why are we serious about this thing? It's because that is the one thing, the one truth that has the power is sharing the gospel. You see, the gospel may be simple, but it's not superficial. Because of his grace, it's free, but it's not cheap. The cross makes the gospel good news. And so, moving on from that, that is our king's coronation in a nutshell. I know it's a lot, and we're flying through it, but that is our king's coronation. But now, let's look at what does life in the kingdom look like? If that's our king who came and set the example, lived amongst us, loved us, died for us, and invited us into eternal life with him, what does life look like in the kingdom? And as I read these characteristics of what the kingdom looks like, I got these characteristics from this passage that I think were abundantly clear. And I pray that this opens our eyes. So this morning, if this is not you, excuse me, I pray you don't leave in shame and guilt and further justify your hardness of heart. If these characteristics don't identify your life, it might be because you're not truly saved and you're not truly in the kingdom. And praise God that your eyes are open to that. And so once again, I pray, instead of rejecting, it goes to softening. And so let's, one, let's look at life in the kingdom. First thing we see, it's a life of spreading the gospel, of spreading God's word. You see in verse 17, near the beginning, we see people who saw what happened to Lazarus and they're telling everybody what he's done. I mean, a huge crowd's out there, right? They're like, hey, come and see this dude, come and see. And then verse 21 and 22, the disciples were trying to bring people to Jesus. All throughout scripture, not only is it commanded, but it's exemplified. One of the greatest ways of knowing in scripture, when someone truly put their faith in Christ, what did they immediately go do? Told people, exactly. So I'll just share my story. I remember when, Going into my 10th grade year, Jesus really got a hold of my life and I got saved. I'm sure I was super prideful in so many ways. I know I was ignorant to a lot of what I was talking about. I didn't fully understand the gospel. I didn't fully understand how to explain the gospel. But I knew I had a desire to see my friends and family members and people I went to school with know Jesus. I, didn't, I, I wasn't eloquent in my speech. I wasn't that smart. I just knew, hey, here's what he did in me and here's what the Bible says. Read John 3 with me. I didn't know what I was doing, but I knew I had to do something. And so one of the characteristics of the Christian life we see all throughout Scripture, and, and if you've ever met anybody that Jesus really changed their life, like legit, you know that they're a Christian. They might come off as crazy, but what do they do? They tell people, hey, look, look what Christ did in me, right? I think of, in, I mean, in this passage, it references Isaiah chapter 6 that says, when he saw the throne room and truly saw God, what was Isaiah's response? Anybody remember? When it says that the, the angel of the Lord is looking to and fro, wherever or who will go, who will be our messenger of the Lord? And Isaiah, I picture him raising the hand, but he said what? Here am I, send me. And that's why we named our son Isaiah, but that's what, here am I, send me. And you see that <laughs> there's, he lives this life of God, I will proclaim your word. I've seen your glory, yes. Jeremiah 20, um, verse nine, when Jeremiah, he's called the weeping prophet because he went through a lot of crap, but he was consistently obedient, but he got discouraged just like anybody else would. And he got to a point where he was super discouraged. He'd been beaten, he had been imprisoned, he had been rejected. The gospel had been rejected that he was preaching, telling Israel to turn back to the God of, God of Israel. And finally, in his discouragement, he said, Almost like he was thinking about giving up. And he says this, but if I say, I will not mention his word or speak anymore in his name, his word becomes like a, like a fire in my heart, a fire shut up in my bones. I'm weary and tired of holding it in. Indeed, I cannot. If you are a believer in this room, I'm not trying to shame, I'm not trying to shame anyone who might just be living in disobedience or, hey, I know I should share the gospel, but I'm, Honestly, I'm just backing down. I'm not being courageous or bold or I'm, I'm what? 
there is a journey of living your faith boldly. But if you are in this room and you want to know, does that live in me? I would just ask you this. If you're being honest with yourself in the mirror before God, is there a genuine desire in your heart for others to know Christ? Is there a genuine desire in your heart for your family, your friends, your coworkers, acquaintances, enemies to know and surrender their life to Christ and have the joy that you have? Not be a better person, not get religion, but that desire. If that desire is not in your Christ or not in your heart, I just want to plead that you would consider maybe you're not in the kingdom after all. Because that's kingdom character. Let's keep going. I know this is heavy, but praise God, he's a heavy lifter. So, B, life of pursuing Christ. The difference between the kingdom of God and any other religion is we pursue a king and it's a personal relationship with a person. That's what's different than every other religion. The, the, the six major, somebody argue seven, six major religions of the world, right? Like that's what's different than, than, than Islam. They follow the Quran. And there's a lot of other teachings most people don't know about, but it kind of starts in the Quran. But, and they follow Muhammad, who wrote the Quran. And then, I'm saying that very like rednecky. They wouldn't pronounce it like that. But then, and then they follow these other writings where Muhammad says, I am not God. I am just his prophet. Here's what you need to do to attain and get to God. And it's super impersonal. So the difference between Christianity and religion is when you're, when you're a religion, you're not following a person. You're following a religion. In Buddhism, most people follow the writings of Buddha who, who start off by saying, I am not God, but I'm trying to achieve nirvana or inner peace to get to where God resides one day. You're not following a person. You're just copying what Buddha did trying to follow this religion that he, he created, right? And the same thing with the Hinduism. Over a million established gods. I am burning incense to this statue or idol. I am burning incense to this demon, whatever, this false god, so that he'll give me this in return, so that I'll have this in the afterlife. It is I'm following a religion, not a king, not a relationship or a person. The same thing in animism. Think witchcraft, voodoo. That's people doing more of like a sorcery type thing to where I'm going to bow the knee to the strongest demons or gods in their eyes so that they bless me and give me things, right? Very similar to Hinduism. Judaism, that's a fancy word that kind of polarizes the Jews. And so Judaism, a lot of Jews that are still Jews, there's Messianic Jews, meaning they believe in Christ as the Messiah, and there's Jews. A lot of Jews, unfortunately, still today, don't believe Christ is who he said he is, don't believe in the New Testament, and don't believe the Messiah has come. And let me just tell you, the, to, to read the Old Testament and to believe in the Old Testament and not have faith that Christ is the Messiah is to not believe the Old Testament. What do I mean by that? It's to follow religion and follow works because in the Old Testament, the Old Testament points to someone greater than the patriarchs like Abraham or Moses or Joshua or the temporary kings that come on the scene like Saul or David or Solomon or even greater than the prophets like Samuel, Elijah, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. To truly understand the Old Testament and not have faith in the coming Messiah, the whole Old Testament is about that Jesus is the Christ is to miss the whole point of, the, of two-thirds of the Bible and the, uh, uh, by the culmination of Christ in the flesh. And so to even be a Jew, which is crazy, is, is to still be the Pharisee who says, crucify him. That's not our king. Even in, and my heart is dear, and I have to be gentle in how I say this, but even in Catholicism, half my family now comes from that background. And you're not following, you're following a religion 10 out of 10 Catholics I've talked to around the world and just in my life, it seems. In theory, Jesus is my savior. But actually what I believe is I have to do these things and these sacraments and follow this and do this, this, and this to achieve that. It's dressed up a little prettier on paper, 
but you're not following a person. It's not a real relationship with the king. You're following a religion. The difference between religion is religion is man-centered. What do I have to do to earn my way to God? Christianity is God-centered. What did Christ do to make a way for us? We see the difference there? And praise God the difference. We're not a cult. We're not just a religion. We follow a living person, a fully man and fully God, came on this earth, is back, ascended into heaven. And the life, the kingdom life, if you're truly a believer, it is a pursuit of Christ. We get to be with the king. And no other religion is it a, per, is it a personal and loving God. It's impersonal and earn your way. But we have a loving and gracious God who wants to be with us. And he promises us, my presence will not depart from you, for I'll leave my Holy Spirit inside of you to dwell in you. And so now if you're a believer, there should be, not should be, there will be the Holy Spirit in your life if you're truly born again. And guess what? He's yearning to know Christ. He's yearning to spend time with God. There, if you're in the kingdom, there is a desire to know God more. Not come to church to be better or be religious or get your life straight, but there is a desire to know God. Yes, we can be disobedient. Yes, we can be imperfect. Yes, we can have hardened hearts at times because of sin and lack of surrender. But there is at the foundation a desire to know God more. Hmm. Life in the kingdom is about pursuing and being with the king. That's so evident. If you don't have that desire, I just beg you to ask the question, am I in the kingdom? See, and I'll, I'll speed up here, but also in the kingdom's life, in the, the life in the kingdom is the king's glory. Guess what? We have a president, so it's not quite the same, but when you're a part of the kingdom, it's all about who? The king, right? That's kind of foreign to us because we've grown up, like the whole reason we just celebrated Independence Day, like we separated from the king, right? And so to be in a true kingdom is about the king's glory. And watch at these two contrasting examples from the text. Verse 41, Isaiah said, Isaiah said all this because he saw Jesus' glory and spoke about him. Let me tell you what it's like to live for God's glory just by looking at Isaiah's life. In Isaiah chapter 6, he saw a vision of the Lord in his glory, and his response was, here, my send me. And God told him, you're going to go proclaim this message to a people who aren't going to listen, who are going to reject you, who are going to hate you, who are going to harden their hearts. And guess what? He never saw a revival. He never saw Israel turn back and believe in God. How depressing is that? What kept him going? He saw God's glory. What drives us to do missions? It's a passion for God's glory. I'm not faithful and obedient whether a thousand people come to church or 10 people come to church. I'm faithful and obedient because I'm faithful to the king. He deals with the fruit. He deals with the growth. That's why, I, that's why Jonah was reluctant and he went back in the whole town of Nineveh, the whole city of Nineveh, 750,000, whatever, turned back to God. And Isaiah is obedient his whole life and doesn't see anything. What is that? But it's about God's glory, not mine. It's about the king, not me. And we just see not only that, but Isaiah, if you want to know how he died, he was martyred. And they sawed him in two, tied like this. And they went from his growing to his head and sawed him in two. But man. He saw the glory of God. And let's look right after verse 41. Look at verse 42 and 43. A contrasting example. Yet at the same time, many even among the believers, among the leaders believed in him, but because of the Pharisees, they would not openly acknowledge their faith for fear they would put out of the synagogue. For they loved human praise more than the praise from God. There's only two possible motivations at any given time operating in your life. At the foundation of why you do what you do, why you wake up in the morning, why you tap your alarm clock and get up, there's two possible motivations at any given time that's going on in your body, in your heart. You're either concerned with God's glory or your glory. We can get deep, philosophical, ideological, all the things, but the, the, a real foundational theology any given time, you're living for either God's glory or your glory. And if you're not in the kingdom, obviously it's your own glory. And so, a part of being in the kingdom is you desire, like what are you living for? Your desire becomes more about God's glory than your glory. 
less of you, like John the Baptist said, less of me, I must decrease or he must increase, less of me, more of Christ. And so is that true for your life? Unfortunately, as believers, we, we mess up all the time, but praise God for his grace. But man, like glory, all the time we have to have a glory check. Whose glory am I living for? Why do I really want this? And a lot of times we dress up, oh, I'm doing this for God's glory. I think of the athlete who doesn't know God at all. He's like, yeah, it's glory to God. And they say whatever. Sometimes it could be genuine, but it's just funny to me. It becomes a catchphrase, but God sees our heart. You're either living for your glory or for God's. Lastly, and this will be the last part, um, and then we'll close, but the last characteristic of life in the kingdom that I think is abundantly clear in this passage is in verse 24 and 25 when Jesus says, very truly I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. The last kingdom principle or kingdom characteristic, whatever you want to say, we have to die to live. To truly live, we have to die. Not only coming to salvation because Christ had to die so that we could have salvation. But in order for us to come to salvation, we have to die. Let me explain. I believe the reason religion is so attractive around the world, atheism is like a, kind of like suicide. It's, it's, more of a, it's more of a, what's the word? Privilege to the first world than it is the third world. But the same thing, most of the, the world, they believe in some God because Ecclesiastes says God put the eternity in the heart of man. Why is religion more attractive, I think, than a real relationship with Christ? Because in religion, I don't have to die to Ethan. I can keep being Ethan and do these things and do these good works and say this confession or, or, or run through these hoops or whatever, right? Like in, in religion, I'm not inherently evil. I can keep doing me. I can have all my dreams, aspirations. I can have all my selfish things I want. I can chase what I want to chase. But as long as I doctor it up by doing these things around, I can keep the center of my life the center. And I can keep Ethan as the king of my life. I think that's why religion is so attractive because it can just be so easy to justify, man, hey, I even got baptized. Hey, I've, I've gone to church my whole life. Hey, I've, I've done all this. For the Muslim, I pray five times a day. I've gone to Mecca. I follow in the footsteps of Muhammad. For the Buddhist, man, I've removed all the things that distract me from the desires of this world. From the Hindu, man, I've got the red dot every day showing I burn incense to my God and I'm faithful every morning, first thing before the sun comes up. For the Jews, man, I celebrate Passover every year and we look forward, we still celebrate, we still have faith the Messiah is gonna come one day. He's gonna come save us from our sins. Religion is so attractive because you can, you can believe this and it makes you feel better about yourself instead of actually coming to die. The way into the kingdom is to come and die at the cross where Jesus already put your sins anyway. And I got saved when my eyes were open and I realized I have to surrender Ethan to God. And it became not that I'm perfect, not that anyone else in here is as a believer, but you had to come to a point. You can't have Jesus as Savior and not as Lord. You have to come to a point. It's not a get out of hell free card. It's a Lord, I no longer want to sit on the throne of my life and be the king of my life. I surrender the kingship, the coronation, the lordship, the throne. I surrender to you, not my life, but yours. Then and only then do you step into and be part of the kingdom. But more than just that, here's where it gets crazy. The whole way not only is dying the entry into the kingdom, dying is how we live and move and breathe in the kingdom. Jesus says, if you, whoever wants to be my disciple, pick up your cross and follow me. That meant go die. He says, whoever else wants to be my disciple, later in Luke, deny yourself daily and follow me. Paul says, now that, now that we've thrown the old man aside and we've been crucified and raised in Christ, walk in the newness of life. 
There's a battle of spirit and flesh, and I'll be honest, as a believer, I think this is the hardest thing we struggle with, that after we truly have died and surrendered our heart to Christ and our identity has changed as either a son or a daughter in Christ, now begins the daily battle of we're not perfect, but we serve a perfect Savior. I'm seen as righteous in the eyes of God, but I don't always live rightly. And so what it is, is it's a battle of let me die to what Ethan wants. God, crucify Ethan today. Let me get lower and lower so I can decrease, so he can increase. And the more I'm living out the Christian life of dying to myself, the more I'm fruitful, the more God uses me. It's the whole principle of John chapter 15. And the only way to die to yourself, that's very strong language because it's serious. We play with sin when it says it's a crouching lion at the door. The only way to die, I can't grit my teeth. You can't grit your teeth really hard and say, I'm gonna be more disciplined. I'm gonna kill this thing. I'm gonna really resist temptation. I'm really, really surrender to sin finally. I'm really gonna be honest in my marriage. I'm really gonna stop, I'm really gonna stop cheating. I'm really gonna put this down. I'm really gonna, I'm really gonna be blah, blah, blah. You can go on and on and on, but the only thing that changes my heart is the presence of the king. And so where we come and die is in the presence of God. To say, I'm going to live a godly life and not desperately seek God in his word and in the prayer closet is to deceive yourself. To say, I want to be fruitful and I want to be used by God. Here am I sending me and not study God's word and not spend time with our creator. It's to deceive yourself. We come, we become who we're around. The more you hang out with King Jesus, the more you smell of Jesus. The more you talk like and look like and walk like Jesus. You're as full of the Holy Spirit as you choose to be. You are, you are as in love with Christ as you want to be. You are as heavenly minded right now as you have set out to be. Because I can look at a man or a woman's prayer life and time in God's presence, and I'll tell you how much God is using that man or woman. No one's exempt from that because it's about what he does in us and through us, not about how great we are. It's all about the king's glory, not ours. And so for some of us this morning, you may really have a relationship with the Lord, but to be honest, you've forgotten how to die. You've forgotten what it's like to get in God's presence and your heart be changed and your mind be renewed like Romans 12 says. And you care more about the things of God, more about the things of heaven, more about your friend's salvation than anything else. And, and the sin of life, the distractions, the muck of life, we can, we can chalk it up to whatever we want to. But ultimately, we care about other things more than God. And he calls us to come lay it at the cross and die. To come put it at the cross and kill it. And I don't have the power to kill the selfishness and frustratingness of Ethan that wants to disobey God. But I do have the power to come to Christ because the Holy Spirit lives in me and yearns for Christ. I have the power to come before him. And the longer I'm in God's presence, the less Ethan comes out of that room. I love how Hebrews 12, verses 27 through 29 talks about he's given us an unshakable kingdom. What the Holy Spirit has put in you and sealed in you, if you're in the kingdom of God, is unshakable, meaning it's a solid rock foundation like Matthew 7 refers to, meaning nothing can take your salvation away. Nothing can take the judgment of the cross away from you. But there's times it says that I once again, I will shake the foundations so that what's unshakable remains. Ooh, I don't know about you, but some people I know in my life, I need the Lord to shake me up sideways, corkscrew. I need him to shake me up because I'm so concerned with everything else except God. But because he loves us, it says he disciplines his children, those whom he loves, praise God by his grace because he has a way of shaking us up. And it's so much better when we do it out of obedience, not out of rock bottom. But he has a way of shaking, shaking us up to where, hey, remember who you're living for? Hey, remember who the king is? Hey, remember who this is all about? And I love it because, because, and I'll be quiet in like three seconds. <laughs> in verse 29, after it talks about the unshakable kingdom that he shakes, he says, for our God is a consuming fire. Hebrews 12, 29. And you know what's crazy about fire? It's the one element. I don't know if anybody grew up on Avatar Airbender, but there's the one element Earth, water, air, fire. I can play in the sand and with the earth, and I'm not changed. I can go swim in the pool. I taught swim lessons for many years. Go swim in the ocean. I'm not changed. 
I can be outside flying a kite in the breeze, the wind, or even a tornado and just be smart. I'm not changed. But I cannot go get in fire and remain the same. I can't pass through fire and be unchanged. The reason our God is a consuming fire is because you can't not get in the presence of a holy God and leave the same. When my flesh comes before God, and I'm really with him, communing with the Lord, seeking him, guess what happens? The, he begins to burn off Ethan out of Ethan. He begins to burn off you out of you. And you're going to leave that place more concerned with the things of God than how you came in. This is a hard and heavy word, and I know it's a lot. And I'm just going to stop myself. We're going to, I'm going to pray. But my prayer is that we would die today. It's a great day to die. And if it needs to be your first time coming to salvation, coming to die at the cross and say, Jesus, I surrender. I die to my lordship, my kingship of my life. It wasn't mine anyway. We have people that want to pray with you and want to rejoice and high five and, and get excited about coming into the kingdom. And for those that are in the kingdom, I think sometimes the cross gets dusty. We forget how to come back to the cross. We forget how to come and die. And maybe this morning God's kind of awoken something in you, brought a fresh wind and fresh fire that says, man, I've been living my glory for a long time again. It's time to come back and be shaken up. And so will you bow your eyes, or bow your heads, close your eyes. And we have people that are excited to pray. But if God has been opening your eyes this morning, I just pray that you would be bold and you would come to the cross and lay down your life so you can walk in newness of life. And so if you've never truly surrendered your life to Christ, not you've been religious, not you've been baptized, if you've never truly surrendered your life to Christ and made him the king of your life, would you raise your hand and we wanna pray for you? Amen. A few more seconds. Best you raise your hand. Awesome. And secondly, guys, I'll still close. If, if you know you need to be shaken, if you know you need the fire to burn off some flesh, if you know you've been distant from God, if that's you, would you raise your hand? Hmm. Amen. Whether you need to come to the altar, get in the aisles, or pray with the person beside you, that's a lot of us. Thank you all for being honest. I'm going to pray as Andrew closes us. Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for your word. God, I pray we would live in the fullness of life in the kingdom, and we would die to ourselves and live for you, Father. Oh, how sweet is the life fully laid down for you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for this time. And thank you for the cross. In Jesus' name. Amen.